Yeah, yeah. Cool. Good point. All right. With that, we're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And if you have a Bible, turn there real quick and read along with us. Thank you, uh, Adrian, for covering for me last week. I went out of town. I went down to um, uh, crisscross all over Florida, actually, but um, went to Stacy's niece was getting married. And, um, and then Sunday, I ran a, another marathon. And I love running marathons because when you get, you're, you're, you're going to this place at five in the morning and there's thousands of people filling up city blocks in Cocoa Beach, Florida, and they're blaring techno music and there's a DJ and people are just 530 in the morning, just dancing and shouting and getting all pumped up and psyched up. And then they all take off and run for 26 miles. And uh, people are standing there, you know, waiting at the start line and helping each other stretch out and they're, they're supporting one another and cheering each other on. I'm like, man, I have a hard enough time just getting people to get along in the body of Messiah. You know, it's like stop fighting, you know, or, or, or come to a Shabbat service every once in a while so we can get to know you and you can worship with us. And it's like these people are just fanatics, you know. Um, it's like a religion in and of itself. So I try to, I go there to try to figure out how do I get, um, how do I get believers and disciples of Yeshua to get pumped up like that, you know? Not with um, We all need to run a marathon maybe, yeah, no. But yeah, it's, um, it's fun, it's fun in a weird, in a weird psycho kind of way, yeah. But, um, so it's good to be back and, and continue through First Timothy. Uh, we're going to go through, we got two more chapters in First Timothy, then we're going to move on to Second Timothy. Um, but then after I read First Timothy chapter 5, we're going to do something a little bit different today, and that is we're going to ordain a new elder of the congregation. That's Bob Sanders, and we're going to call him up, and we're going to go through our ordination uh, prayers over him. And Adrian and Bobby and myself are going to come up and lay hands on him, and any men who are willing come up and lay hands on him, and we're going to ordain him as a new rabbi, taking the place of Bobby Coleman. So rabbi. we'll do the new rabbi or new elder. Did I say rabbi? <laughs> there you go. Maybe speaking the prophetic? No. <laughs> Our new, uh, yeah, Rabbi Bob, our new elder, he's like, you will now address me as Rabbi. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, you know, today's the kind of day when I taught school, I used to really struggle with keeping kids awake. You can hear the rain pattering on the roof, right? And everybody's kind of tired and sleepy and looking across the room. And everybody's like, okay, what do you got for me? Keep me awake, right? And uh, Ted's really struggling. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Today was the day I would, I would bring like a, like, a, like a dodgeball or a little Nerf football into the classroom. And I would, have stu- I would throw it to one student and I would say, tell me one thing you learned from this lesson. And then they would, they would catch it and say one thing. And then they could throw it in anybody they wanted in the classroom. And they would have to say one thing they learned. And we would do that for about five minutes. So you had to be paying attention. You'd be dodging and, and looking around, right? And then kids would just like pelt one another in the head with a Nerf football right next to them. So if you got that, where's that football? I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do it today. But no, I, I do want to start off with a fun little, little uh, quiz just to kind of keep everybody awake and see how much you've been paying attention throughout this series. Timothy lives and is leading a city in which congregation? Now, pause, pause. I want 16 and under to answer these questions, okay? Ian, I saw your hand. What is the answer? Ephesus. Very good, very good. So if you're 16, and, so you're frozen now, Ian. Uh, Paul refers to Timothy as his what in the faith? As his what? Raise your hand if you got the answer. You're frozen. As his what? Paul refers to Timothy as his what in the faith? Is it brother? No. Nope. Good guess though. Yeah. Son, you got it. Good job, Megan. You're frozen now. True son. Okay. True. What? Yeah. True, true. Yeah. It's true son in the faith. Yeah. True or false? Timothy is elderly. Now I want 16 or under to answer. Who's got it? Is Timothy elderly? Yeah. 
That'd be false. He's what? He's young. He's young. Okay. Describe Timothy's parents and their upbringing. Does anybody know? Uh, 16 or under in the room? Anybody? Describe his parents. What, what, what do we know about his parents? Sophie? Correct. Yeah. He was raised. Exactly. Exactly. So very good. Um, he was raised by his grandmother and his mother. Does anybody remember their names? This is for anybody. Anybody remember their names? Eunice and Lois. Lois. They were Jews. They were 100% ethnic Jews. Their, his father, which always goes unnamed, Timothy's father, is a Greek. He's, 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 he's a Gentile, okay? So uh, we'll see how that kind of comes into play later with his, this different dynamic. But biblically speaking, there should be two types of leaders in a local congregation, the blank and the blank. Remember, oh, the answer's up on the board. Anybody remember? Elders and deacons. I saw your hand. That's what you're going to say, right? Good. Elders and deacons. Yeah, good. The blank are concerned with the non-physical components of the congregation, like teaching, counseling, doctrinal decisions, etc. Which one of those? Megan? Elders. Good. All right. And then the blank are concerned with the physical components of the congregation, like the money, the benevolence to poor, uh, events, assistance to needy. 16 or under. You got it? Yeah. Deacons, good job. Wow. All right, let's do a little multiple choice here. I like multiple choice because I always have like a 25% chance of getting it right. What is Paul's primary motivation in writing this letter to Timothy? A, what is his motivation? For Timothy to come up with creative ways, new ways to attract attendees to the local synagogue. B, for Timothy to stress the importance of giving so the building fund can be met. C, for Timothy to go to church. To uh, church to church explaining why they have it wrong? Or D, for the unity and the longevity of the local assembly in the faith? What do you guys think? It should be a resounding D. 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 Right, good, good. Yeah, that's the whole point of the letter. With that, let's get into the fifth chapter of this letter. Verse 1 Do not rebuke an older man sharply. Let's pause there because notice. Paul is telling Timothy, remember, Timothy is younger. He's maybe in his late 20s or 30s. And he's saying, don't rebuke an older man sharply. Notice he's not saying, don't correct an older man ever. But he's saying, if you have to correct an older man, don't do it sharply. But appeal to him as you would a father. Old people don't like correction coming from young people. I used to say, you know, with my mother, for instance, who has changed my poopy diapers many, many times, a long time ago, I should not be, I should be tailoring my theological correction and doctrinal correction to my mother or any sort of exhortation or rebuke to my mother, remembering that she has had to change my poopy diapers many a times. So... When you rebuke an older man sharply as a younger man, what does it do? It closes that older man off to the rebuke because you have disrespected him. You have hurt his dignity and his pride, some of which is legitimate. You have embarrassed him. So what he is saying is respect an older man. If you have to correct him, don't do it in a sharp way. Do it in a way that preserves his dignity, that preserves his honor and is respectful. He says, but appeal to him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers. So with brothers, you can be a little bit more jovial. With brothers, you can be a little bit more stern. 
With brothers, you don't have to be so concerned with protecting their pride or their honor or their dignity. And older women, like your mothers, same thing with older men, right? Protect their dignity, protect their, their honor. Don't rebuke them or exhort them in a sharp or harsh way. And younger women, like sisters, with absolute purity. See, Paul is saying he's very concerned with this dynamic of giving rebuke because he knows Timothy is going to have to rebuke people in the congregation. A rebuke means it's just simply put a correction. He's concerned. He said, basically, you have to tailor your presentation, Tim, to your audience. If you have to speak correction, tailor it to your audience because it's not a one size fits all kind of deal with when it comes to rebuking or when it comes to exhortation. Be aware of your audience. Be aware of who you're talking to. Be mindful of that. Be thoughtful. Be slow. Be methodical with your audience. But I like the last bit. It says, with absolute purity. You see, Paul is concerned with Tim making sure he's above reproach with young women. So he's not going to get a young woman in a room alone and rebuke her without her parents. Or rebuke her just alone in general. Even if with her parents' blessing. An elder of a congregation, really any man in this congregation, listen close. If it is not your mother, your wife, or your daughter, don't be found alone in a room with a female. You got me? Just don't let it happen. It's just unwise on a lot of different levels. You'll notice that about myself. I won't go in a room alone with a female. I'll try not to be in a home alone with a female. I won't be in a car alone with a female. I do my best to maintain that purity. I won't be huggy-huggy with a lot of females. And then like some young ladies here, you know, like we play spike ball or we play kickball or whatever. The most I will do in terms of physical affection is maybe a fist bump or a high five. And that's fine. That should be okay. Young ladies in the room, that protects you and it protects me. It's operating in purity, absolute purity. No one can ever accuse and stand back and say, man, Gabe's getting a little bit touchy-feely. Gabe's a little bit flirtatious. Gabe's awful kind of like huggy. I'd rather just err on the side of like not doing that and maybe just doing high fives or fist bumps. And, you know, if I hurt someone's feelings, they can come to me and talk to me about it. But that's kind of how I operate. That's my MO. Verse 3. He says, show respect to widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, first let them do their religious duty to their own family, thus repay some of the debt that they owe their forebearers. For this is what is acceptable in the sight of God. So what Paul is saying to Tim is, let family be a system of welfare before they come into the congregation and burden the congregation financially. In other words, that's their religious duty. The family should support the widows. That's ideal. It's familial welfare. It's the best kind of welfare. It's when a family props up another family member who is in need, especially if it's legitimate need. Verse 5. Now the widow who is really in need, the one who has been left all alone, this, this Greek word implies like left desolate, has, she has set her hope on God. And continues in petitions and prayers night and day. Now this is a legitimate widow according to Paul. Now I, I don't know, I don't have many memories about my paternal grandmother. Her name was Beulah. And she, she lived in Memphis, Tennessee. And it's where she's buried now. And she, um, she was adopted 
Um, she grew up very poor, a uh, family of rice farmers in eastern Arkansas. And she married a very hard man. His name was Sam. And he was a welder all his life. Um, he died when my dad was in Bible college, I believe it was. But um, not a very physically affectionate man, not a, not a strong believer. If he, I don't think he even was a believer. And when he died, my grandmother was, was a widow. And the few memories I have of my grandmother Beulah, my grandmother Rutledge, going to her home was that there was always Christian music or gospel playing on the radio. There was always an open Bible on her dining room table next to a cup of sweet tea with a, a paper towel wrapped around it to hold it with the condensation getting her hands wet. I remember that. And I remember she would always ask to pray with us before we left to go back to Florida. She was always a woman who was just in deep prayer. She was an intercessor. And she specifically prayed a lot for my father, who was just a, a rascal growing up. And was anything but uh, material for pastoral ministry. And was actually kicked out of one Christian university, Christian college. He was kicked out of seminary and then went to a different one where he finally, by the skin of his teeth, completed and became an ordained pastor. But that just gives you an idea of his behavior and, and even after becoming a believer. But he attributed that a lot. He always went back and said, it's because of my mother's prayers for me that I was able to, to, to surpass um, everyone's expectations and become an ordained pastor. You see, there's a lot of power in the effective prayers, the fervent prayers of a godly widow. They are some of the strongest and most potent and powerful warriors for the kingdom. Physically speaking, and it's always physical, you know, it doesn't really mean much in the kingdom. It doesn't mean anything in the kingdom, really. Physically, they look frail. Physically, they look, you know, maybe they they can't defend themselves or helpless or whatever. But spiritually, man, they are like the, the, the generals in God's army. When they go to pray, God listens. You know, there's just so many miracles that have, that, have, that have happened because of the fervent and consistent prayers of widows, godly widows. Verse 6 says, but the one who is self-indulgent is already dead, even though she lives. You've got to remember that biblically speaking, there's two types of death. There's physical death where your heart stops beating and there's spiritual death. Now, the ideal is when the two lives, the two forms of living eclipse each other. When you're alive spiritually and you're alive physically, that's the ideal man. Now, how do you get alive spiritually? You, you accept the atoning work of Messiah over your life and over your sins. You confess your sins. You profess him as Lord and Savior. And then you go into the waters of baptism and you come up a new creation and you're alive physically or you're alive spiritually as well. What Paul is saying here is there's people walking around that are dead spiritually and alive physically. There's people in the assembly that are that, he's saying. And they are widows. And he says in verse 7, instruct them about this so that they will not be open to blame. Moreover, anyone who does not provide for his own people, especially for his family, has disowned the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow, very powerful statement Paul is making there. Anyone who does not provide for his own people, especially his family, has disowned the faith. Why? Why is that the case? Because Paul knows the front of his Bible. 
Who has Proverbs 18, 9 out here? Who has that? Proverbs 18, 9. You got it, Marcus? Can you read it nice and loud for me? Whoever is lazy in doing his work is brother to the destroyer. Hmm, is brother to the destroyer. Who has Proverbs 10, 4? Read it nice and loud if you do. Idle hands bring Idle hands bring poverty. Diligent hands bring what? Wealth. You see, the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, is praising those who work with their hands. Praising those who work, right? Use the things that God has given them to bring wealth for themselves. Who has 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 12? Is that you, Hannah? Would you mind reading it nice and loud for me? So Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 is saying, settle down, get to work, and earn your own living. You see, that's, Paul is imploring people, don't stop working. Earn a living. Provide for your family because that's a form of godliness. People will see you doing that and they will say, that's a godly man or that's a godly woman. Why? Because they can balance their own finances. They can pay for for different things. They can can put a roof over their family's head. That's a godly attribute, Paul is saying. You know, we have in the United States this thing called welfare. And it's like a corporate corporate thing in which we all pay into from our wages. Mm -hmm. And then that's taken and that's divvied up by the government, whether it's the state or the federal government, to people who they deem are deserving of that welfare. And that's always a very equitable and just system, right? No. no, it's not. And in fact, welfare in the United States and the number of people on it has perpetually grown and grown and grown every year. And it is designed in the United States to break up and incentivize couples from never marrying and living in separate households, having children together, but then living in separate households. It incentivizes them to do that. It doesn't matter the race. It doesn't matter anything about that. Why does a politician want people to be in poverty? Why does a politician want families to be broken up and remain unable to provide for themselves? Because it's about here. Oh, you can't make it. Let me write a check for that. Let me write it. It's about being the sugar daddy, right? Okay. Now here come voting time. You'll remember that that letter behind my name, whatever it is, was the one that was your sugar daddy. And you will pull the lever for that particular political party, right? It's about what we call buying votes. Now, back in the day, in the early years of the United States of America, welfare and the distribution of it was centered around and based out of the local church. And when you needed food, if you needed a meal, if you needed help with your bills or whatever, if you needed a job, the first place that you came to was the center of your religious community, the church. And that was then divvied out from there. Now our all benevolent, all righteous government said, no, I'll take that from you. And now we have to compete. The the body of Messiah has to compete with the gospel of Uncle Sam. There is this direct correlation 
between physical hunger and spiritual hunger. And in the United States of America, it's actually, you have to try really hard to go hungry, to go to bed hungry. There's so much food in excess in the United States of America. And a lot of it's provided by the hands of the federal government. Benjamin Franklin is quoted saying, the best way to help the poor is to make them uncomfortable in their poverty. Meaning, don't let them starve to death, but give them just enough to hold them over and then allow them to be uncomfortable in their poverty. And they'll want to get themselves out of poverty. Now, obviously, there are real legitimate cases where a person cannot work and provide for themselves. And those used to be called opportunities for the church. But what Benjamin Franklin was saying is, don't create a system of entitlement where basically you're just creating slavery again. And people are so enslaved and just, you know, sucking on the teat of the government. And that's all they can think about is which person do I have to vote for to get me something without thinking about how, what repercussions does this have 20 years from now? Which business owners will be done with doing business in the United States of America because their taxes keep going up? And so therefore, they're going to take everything and all the jobs with them overseas. See, it's an animalistic kind of thought. It's like, how do I get calories today? And I'm not worried about 5, 10, 20 years from now. How do I just fill my needs today? So the status of, uh, of the welfare system in America is crippling couples. It's incentivizing separation of couples. It's... It's furthering the decay of the family because when you, when you break up couples, you're breaking up families. When you're breaking up families, you're breaking up societies. When you're breaking up societies, you're breaking down a nation. You're, put, you're putting people in a state of dependency on you. There was a Roman historian who was writing. He was lamenting the fall of Rome. And he said in a kind of a paraphrase, basically, that the people of Rome forsook their destiny for the sake of voting in bread and circuses. For the sake of bre- bread and circuses. In other words, they voted for politicians that just gave them something to fill their bellies and entertain their minds. Meanwhile, their country was just decaying. Now, sometimes we do this thing and we say, well, politicians should have principle. They should have a backbone. The very essence of a politician is to do what the people elected the politician to do. He he doesn't have principles. She doesn't have principles. Their principles are a mirror of the people who elected them there. They're a reflection of the people who put them in office. And that's what a good politician does. They listen to the crowd that elected them and they say, oh, you don't want me to be this black and white on abortion anymore? Okay, I'll change my status on this. I'll change how I vote on that. That's the essence of a politician. And that's why at its very core, God did not ordain a system called democracy to be the way we govern ourselves. We, in this room, live under a monarchy. That monarchy is yet realized on earth. We don't live in a democratic... Now, yes, we have to live in as sojourners and operate in and, and, and discuss with people who are living in a, in a representative republic, a.k.a. a democracy... But knowing that ultimately our king is the king of kings. We live under a monarchy. He calls the shots. So let's go to verse 9. 
Let a widow be enrolled on the list of widows only if she is more than 60 years old. Why is that the case? Because Paul is saying, okay, at 60, you know, it's, a, it's, it's kind of unlikely that they're going to remarry. It's not, it's not, you know, like my mom remarried um, in her 60s, and it's not completely impossible, but it's unlikely. But if she was faithful to her husband and is known for her good deeds, as one who has reared her children well, showed hospitality, washed the feet of God's people, and help those in trouble and engage in all kinds of good work. So Paul is listing out some criteria. If you want to enlist and put, put enroll widows on the list of those who receive aid from the local congregation. You got to remember there was no social security back in Ephesus, right? That, wasn't, that didn't come out yet. There was no social security. There was, the social security was your, your local congregation. It was your family. And if you didn't have family, it was your local congregation. That was your social security. And Paul is saying, here is a list of criteria for, for widows who, to need to be enrolled in, that, in that, that social security program. Verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows. Why? Because there's a higher likelihood of them remarrying. For when they begin to feel natural desires that alienate them from the Messiah, they will want to get married. In other words, Paul is saying, I don't want them making a vow of, 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 of serving the local body and doing things around the synagogue or the congregation and, and visiting people or making meals. I don't want them to make that, that vow almost like a celibacy and, and receive benefit from the, financial benefit from the congregation if they're eventually going to go back off of that and just remarry. I don't want them to wholly put their trust in God and, and, and re- reap the benefits of that if they're just going to go back off of that. So I'd rather they just stay off of it and get remarried. He says this brings them under condemnation for having set aside the trust they had at first. Besides that, they learn to be idle, going around from house to house, not only idle, but gossips and busybodies, saying things they shouldn't say. Therefore, I would rather the young widows get remarried, have children, and take charge of their homes, so as to give the opposition no occasion for slandering us. For already some have turned astray to follow the adversary. Verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, she should provide relief for them. The congregation shouldn't be burdened so that it may help widows who are really in need. Now we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about leaders in the congregation. Verse 17, the leaders or the elders who lead well should be considered worthy of a double proceed or honor or payment, especially those who are working hard at communicating the word and at teaching for the Tanakh, for the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, it says you're not to muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. In other words, let the ox eat while it's doing the work, right? Regaining that energy it needs. And he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy there. In other words, the worker deserves his wages. Now, let's pause here and say that basically what he's saying is an elder, someone who has committed their life to teaching the word of God and teaching and and counseling and doing all those things we saw on that slide up there, they deserve payment. The congregation should put money forth to pay them. Now, did Paul do this, though? Did Paul Paul benefit from money from the congregations that he ministered? No. No, he didn't. Why didn't he? He had every right to. He didn't want to because he wanted to stay above reproach. And he wanted everyone to know my motives are pure here. He was actually a tent maker, wasn't he? And he earned a living by working with his hands. And he said, I deserve to take from the purse, but I don't. Because I want, I want to be above reproach. And I want I, no opportunity for anyone to say, he's just doing it for the money. God forbid. 
But he is telling Timothy here, are there, there are people that do that. They deserve the money. Now, they, they have to be very careful. And that's why he's going to go into some, some uh, qualifications here. He says, never listen to any accusation against a leader unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. It's very important. Paul is saying, if, if someone comes with an accusation uh, to, let's say, Bob Sanders or Adrian about me, Paul is saying they need to have two or three witnesses because you don't want to publicly expose the, the alleged sin of an elder and profane the name of God and affect the faith of young people in the congregation, people that are on the fence, if you're not 100% certain on this. You've got to be so certain on this because it's going, to be, it's, it's going to be catastrophic if you do this. And he says, rebuke, however, a leader in front of the whole assembly, those who keep on sinning as a warning to others. Now, Paul is saying, if you guys do establish as elders that Gabe Rutledge is sinning and unrepentant in that sin, and it's been established on the witness of two or three people, then guess what? Because he is a leader in the congregation, unlike everyone else in the room, Gabe Rutledge's sin has to be exposed publicly. They have to come up and they say, we regret to inform you that Gabe has been unrepentant in X, Y, and Z. So yeah, the leaders, the elders, they can take from the purse. They can receive payment from that as long as they're not exploiting, as long as they're not living lavishly or over the top with that excessively. But unlike everyone else, it's just a lay person. If they get caught in unrepentant sin, that sin has to be exposed publicly. He says... Before God, the Messiah, Yeshua, and the chosen angels, I solemnly charge you, Tim, to observe these instructions, not prejudging and not doing anything out of favoritism. Don't be hasty, meaning don't like rush into it with the laying on of hands of anyone. What that means, it's not just like, you know, someone sit, come up here and lay hands. It's not talking about that kind of laying on hands. It's talking about issuing and, and furthering and, and uh, kind of like what we're doing today, exactly what we're doing today, with ordaining a new elder. Don't be hasty in doing that. You got me? Why? Because if you're hasty in doing that and you haven't fully examined the fruit in the life of that person and you ordain them as a leader in your congregation and they go berserk or it's discovered that they were living this other lifestyle that no one really knew about, they profane the name of God. And what Paul says back in 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 1 and 2, he says that you guys are the pillar of aletheia, of truth. And you have to conduct yourselves accordingly. Because if you don't conduct yourselves properly, people won't believe the truth that you're preaching. So if you bring an elder up and you appoint them hastily, and I would say this applies to you, anyone you allow to speak doctrine into your life, if you allow them to speak doctrine into your life, or, or, or scripture into your life or prophecy into your life and you allow that hastily, there's the, there's the potential for this. But appointing someone hastily can cause a big mess. You want to be slow. You want to be methodical. You want to examine the person's fruit, the long-term fruit of that person. What does the wake of their life look like? That's a big one. Is sometimes you can't always look at a person's fruit. Sometimes they're good at hiding the fruit, the bad fruit with good fruit. Or fake good fruit. But you can always look at the wake. You know when a boat goes through the water and you see the wake of the trail of wake behind? 
You can look at a person's the wake of their life and you can say, man, there's not a lot of people in that person's life that want to continue to hang around with them. There's a lot of relationships in that person's life that are just broken and severed and it's a mess. Now, that's not a be all and end all of determining that person's character, but it says a lot about a person. If in their wake they leave destruction or scorched earth, they might not be the best candidate for being an elder. But if in their wake they leave people who praise them, they leave people who want to be with them and, pr- and spend time with them, if they have beautiful relationships in their wake and family that wants to gather with them, siblings, children, grandchildren, that's a pretty good indicator that they have the fruit of the Spirit exuding out of them. So sometimes look at the wake of a person's life. But he says, don't be hasty in that. Do not share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. In verse 23. Now, it seems like Paul's being a little bit random here. And he is by bringing up this topic. I think Paul is about to wrap up his letter to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy. And he's trying to kind of fit all the random cleaning up stuff that he, the words of advice he wanted to give to Tim before closing out this letter. Because, you know, this is before like emails. And, and he's basically just doing kind of a PS thing now. He's saying, Tim, stop drinking water. Instead, use a little wine for the sake of your digestion and because of your frequent illnesses. So a few things here. Tim, it seems like, is suffering from some illnesses, isn't he? What are those illnesses? Probably something to do with like amoebas living in his digestive tract. <laughs> the water in Ephesus had bugs in it. If you've ever been to a third world country, you know, I was in Uganda a few years ago and I was sitting next to a, a young lady. She had a, um, an IV port in her arm. And it was just, you know, it wasn't the IV was not connected. It was just the port. And she was walking around and just every day she was at a youth conference. Finally, I came to her and I said, what is the IV port for? And she goes, I have to go three times a day to the local hospital and get uh, IV um, antibiotics. Why, Why is that the case? Because I have typhoid right now. Wow. Typhoid is a deadly, deadly bacteria that will, it's a parasite that will live in your system and uh, it's from drinking uh, water that's been contaminated from human sewage. The big problem in Uganda is clean water. Um, even the water you harvest from places that seem clean, they're not. And you have to take it home and you have to boil it uh, and kill all the amoebas and the bugs living in it in many places in Uganda. Um, that's why when I traveled to Israel and, uh, you know, for Stacey and Noah, it was kind of like it wasn't a big thing to them. But for me, it was like you can go to, to Israel and you can open the tap and you can drink that water. You can refill a water bottle. It's like in Uganda, you cannot do, you can't even brush your teeth with the water that comes out of that spigot. You can't even do that. You have to use a, a bottle of water, pour it over the toothbrush, brush your teeth, pour it in your mouth. You don't do all that with a bottle of water. How about in the hotel? In the hotel, no, 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 you can't. Any water, any water you cannot drink. Very dangerous water. But it seems like Tim got some bad water. And it seems like his, his gut was kind of filling up with some of these amoebas. And he was, had this frequent illness. And this is back before you know, antibiotics were, were, were readily available. Um, but... Paul is doing something really wise. Paul knows a little bit about um, the the chemical reaction between alcohol and amoebas living in your digestive tract. And he's saying, hey, stop drinking the bad water that you've been drinking. Apparently you're getting some bad water in Ephesus, right? Instead, drink some wine because wine has alcohol. It's fermented and that alcohol will kill the amoebas that are causing you this discomfort. 
Now, notice a couple things here. It's medicinal, right? It's medicinal. And he says to drink a lot until you're sloshed every night, right? No, what does he say? Drink a little. Drink a little. Now, Paul obviously isn't putting an outright ban on drinking alcohol. Paul is giving an outright ban, we'll see in some of his other letters, on drunkenness. Now, as a public figure, however, Tim, it's, it's interesting that Tim has not been drinking alcohol up until this point, apparently. If he, if he has, Paul's unaware of it, maybe. Tim is a public figure in the congregation. And Tim knows that I'm supposed to live above reproach. And so Tim is not drinking alcohol on a regular basis, apparently, or otherwise he would not be suffering from this ailment. Tim is saying, I'm going to abstain from alcohol because I know that there might be people in the congregation who have a past with alcohol that is really rocky. And I don't want to cause them to sin or to stumble. And that is the kind of the model and the the thing that I have emulated in my own life. There isn't an outright ban on alcohol for Gabe Rutledge to drink alcohol. There isn't. But two things. I am a semi-public figure. I'm standing in front of you publicly and teaching. You all examine my life, hopefully. You watch my actions when I'm not up here, hopefully. And you examine the fruit of my life. So I just, I know that there are people in the room who have struggled and continue to struggle with alcohol consumption. So it's like a way of saying, you know what? I'm going to join you in abstinence of alcohol. Because there's something in your life that is causing you to medicate with alcohol. I'm going to join you in, in, in solidarity with you. And just for the most part, I'm going to abstain from alcohol. Secondly, Gabe Rutledge takes things to the extreme. When I set my mind to something, I go all out. I'm like, ugh, 100%. Let's do this. And alcohol is not excluded from that. So I don't want to get myself into a position where every night I need to come home from work and in order to unwind, I need to throw back a couple beers. I don't want to get into that rhythm because I will take it to its full extreme. So I am very careful with alcohol and the consumption of it. And I think you should be as well. Now, it's not an all outright ban. But Paul is saying, of course, drink some wine. It will help you. Now, there are medicinal qualities to red wine. They are, that's, studies have proven that. But sometimes we, and especially Americans, we just go all out on things. It's like, oh, a quarter pounder with cheese, I'll take five of them, right? <laughs> Stack them all on top of each other. So we got to be very careful. we got to do things in moderation. Americans just don't know moderations. But if you drink a little wine, totally fine with me. Do it in moderation. Be cognizant of who is around you as you're doing it. There are people whose lives have been completely wrecked and turned upside down from alcohol. And when they see you drink, they say, in their complete abstinence, they'll say, well, maybe it's okay for just a little drink. And then there's a slippery slope. Now, obviously, I would prefer the Holy Spirit to heal that wound in them that they're medicating so they can enjoy the pleasures that God has put on this earth, including wine or alcohol. But in the meantime, this side of the kingdom, sometimes we have to just be very mindful and cognizant and not selfish when it comes to consuming alcohol. You got me? 24. The sins of some people are obvious and go ahead of them to judgment, but the sins of others follow afterwards. There is a famous apologist, a Christian apologist, who died a few years back. He was kind of a hero of mine. And he died. And all of his sins came to the surface. 
and they were filthy, they were gross, and they made me for a time really doubt and question. Man, if I believed him, who else is fooling me? Paul is saying the sins of some people are obvious, and they go ahead of them to judgment, but the sins of others follow afterwards. Yeshua says something similar. Similar, He says, your sins will what? Find you out. Your sins will find you out. It's so true. And God, I just pray that our sins will find us out sooner than later. And that we'll have the humility to repent of them, right? Likewise, good deeds are obvious. And even when they are not, they cannot stay hidden. Wow. Potent words coming from Apostle Paul, right? Let's, uh, let's pray, and then I want to invite Bob to come up, and we're going to ordain. This is an exciting day. Ordaining a new elder. Abba, I thank you so much for this opportunity to teach your word. I pray that it strengthens and, and, and edifies our congregation. May you give us all a heart similar to Timothy and Paul, a one that longs for the longevity and the unity of the local assembly. We thank you that you preserved your word for us to read today.